Blog Talk Radio. September 9th, 2017. We are so happy to have you, however, wherever, and whenever you listen to the show. I am your host, John Robb, CEO, publisher of Suspense Magazine. Of course, all the shows here are brought to you by Suspense Magazine, and also all the shows here on Suspense Radio are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on what they have going on. Today we have two hours, four fantastic guests. We're going to kick it off with author Michael Rubin. We're going to have George Bernstein, Thomas Keach, and we're going to fill it off with New York Times bestselling author Erica Spindler. So make sure you check out that. Erica hasn't been on in a couple years. Good to have her back on. Uh, So, again, the last magazine was just out on August the 31st. If you did not get that magazine, which I'll tell you what, has... Uh, let's see, only has Tess Garrison, Linda Fairstein, Peter James, Brenda Novak, Sandra Brown, Alan Jacobson, D.P. Lyle, J.A. Jantz. Just a couple names that you might recognize are in this magazine this month. So you can email us at editor at suspensemagazine.com for a copy. We will send it over to you. But without any further ado, let's get into our first guest. His book is out, and it is called Cashed Out. Um, it is the second in a series. It just came out earlier last month, uh, around, August, around August 15th. So it's available now, however, wherever you want to buy books, you can get it. It is a Bayou Thriller series, and it is the second book in the series, like I said. The first one was called The Cotton Crest Curse. So let's bring on our guest right now, Mr. Michael Rubin. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Doing great, John. Thanks so much for having me. Well, um, like I said, when we kind of talked a little off the air, I haven't had a chance to read Cast Out, so I'll be up front, but I did read The Cotton Crest Curse, very, very, very good book. Um, I kind of love those kind of ghost story-ish kinds of, um, you know, books that, you know, really make you kind of think, you know, psychologically kind of like to kind of get into your, kind of get into your brain. I like thinking kind of things. Um, now you've kind of got a little ahead here. Now you've done Cashed Out, and I did not realize that the characters from Cotton Crest have come into this cast out. So you've kind of created a series of standalones kind of linked together. So why don't you give us a little bit about what you have here in Cashed Out? Uh, I'll be happy to do that, John. Uh, cashed Out is set as a contemporary legal thriller set in Louisiana. That's why it's called the Bayou Series. And Cashed Out uh, is, involves a lawyer who, unlike every other lawyer, in legal books, who's asked to defend somebody, refuses to do so. And every time he refuses, things get worse for him. Uh, He has one failed marriage. He's got two lost jobs. He's got three maxed out credit cards. He's a failure as a lawyer. And he has no clients, no money, no cash. Well, no clients except for the infamous toxic waste processor, G.G. Guidry, and, and he's just been murdered. And no money except for the $4 million. $452,737.17 in cash that Guidry had left with him for safekeeping. 
Now, what's funny is when I when I kind of saw that, I was like, that's such a weird number. That almost has to come into the book somehow. So I'm just going to guess. Does it, or was it really just a number that was like, these are like lottery numbers you decided to play? Oh, no. The, the, the exact calculation plays into the book. Yeah, uh, as, uh, yeah Shex Kareen's, uh when he says, no, things get worse, I mean, he's in the swamps and marshes of the chemical corridor of Louisiana. He's in the river industries that pollute minority neighborhoods. He's in the privileged playgrounds of the New Orleans crime syndicate bosses. He's in a notorious alligator processing plant. He's in uh, the oil and gas rigs. He is running for his life and running to find the money. Well, give us a little bit about Shex. Give, give us a little background of, you know, why, why, why was he the one that you felt would be you know, kind of the perfect person to, uh, you know, be involved in the book and kind of and, and lead yourself forward. Give us, give us the background. Absolutely, Shex is a was a top student in the law school. He was hired. He was the premier associate at a big law firm, and he gets fired by the law firm. He goes to two other jobs, gets fired from those. And why is he fired? What's going on with his life? Why is he such a failure? He's a bright guy. But things are happening to him, and he can't figure out why. And this book tells you why. And like you said, you and know, he redeems himself. Of, he redeems himself. Well, and like you said, you know, he has no clients, he has no cash. You know, he's kind of down in dumps and whatnot. So he's 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 broken. So you've kind of made him broken. You've kind of made him into a into a character that, like you said, kind of has to get himself kind of out of the gutter. So when you're sitting down and you're kind of writing it, was it the journey? Was it the uh, the excitement to try to figure out exactly who he is and how he's going to, to get out along with this mystery with Gidry and everything else that kind of got you excited about writing the book? What was your thought process kind of going behind with the initial conception of getting down and writing it? Well, that's a great question. Well, actually, my wife and I, uh, Ann and I, write these books together, although they're published under my name. Uh, but we write them together, we put them together, we create the characters together, and our thought was, was twofold. Number one, we wanted to create a page-turning thriller that dealt with the issue, the serious issue, which is the tension between wanting great jobs and communities and attracting industries that do this, but yet create potentially environmental problems for the workers and for the surrounding community. And the second was to talk about a character who was on the road to redemption and how he finds redemption on his own. Uh, but we want to do this in the context of a uh, film noir type narrator, uh, a kind of a hard-edged narrator who is narrating his own life and telling his story and bringing the reader along with that. And how is that? Because that's, you know, that's something a little difficult. It's sometimes difficult to keep that point of view always you know, focused. So was that, what was one of your challenges when you're, when you're kind of writing that, that direction and that kind of point of view? Actually, we found that once we started writing him, his voice took over. It was easy to write in Shex's voice uh, uh, about this uh, person who is on this journey. Uh, and mm -hmm. then we have a bunch of other characters in the book who he encounters, runs into, including his ex-wife, including a, a wonderful old neighbor, including some other folks who are bringing lawsuits uh, against these industries. He runs into mafia folks as well. So uh, he has a, a long road through which he has to travel to redeem himself, which he does. Mm -hmm. 
Why don't you take readers back into the Cotton Crest Curse? People who hadn't read that, who hadn't read that book, um, and and kind of bring them a little forward because that was your debut book in in this genre. Am I right? It was. It was published by yeah. the LSU Press, the same folks who did the Pulitzer Prize-winning Confederacy of Dunces and tw- and the Twelve Years a Slave, upon which the movie was based, the annotated version. It's a historical mm-hmm. thriller. Uh, it runs from the Civil War to the Civil Rights era and on into the present. And although the murders are fictional, uh, the history is very accurate. It is called the Cotton Crest Curse, but there's no supernatural stuff in it. There's no witches. There's no... Uh, any kind of other issues that involve supernatural issues. It is a series of murders at a plantation. Two decades after the end of the Civil War, elderly Judge Augustine Chastain viciously slit the throat of his beautiful young wife and then fatally shot himself. But the death of Chastain was not the first suicide at the Cotton Crest Plantation, and it was not to be the last. Or maybe they were all homicides, and maybe they were all linked. That's what the story's about. And for someone like myself who read that book, and I tell people that, you know, if you haven't read it, um, you don't have to read that book first and then, you know, read Cast Out. You, you can do one or the other. You, you can kind of do it any way you want. That's, that's kind of how you've written these books. So, but for someone who has read your first one and now reading the second one, what changes are you going to see from Michael Rubin as a writer? Because a lot of the times the biggest changes you kind of see is from the first to the second book. It's like things that you've learned and things that you said, okay, I want to make stronger or work on. You go to conferences, you know, you hear things from other authors. So what will people notice a difference maybe with Michael Rubin going from the Cotton Crest Curse now into Cashed Out? I think they'll notice two things, and that's a good question, John. One thing they're going to notice is the, is the style. The Cotton Crest Curse jumps backwards and forwards. There are several narrators, and it jumps back between 1860 1893, 1960, and the present. Um, and therefore, it is, a, it is a, an omniscient narrator. Uh, on the other hand, Cashed Out is a first-person, hard-driven narration. So it is a different style of writing. But we have the same uh, intent on both of them, which is that my wife and I, when we write these, which is when the reader gets to the end of a chapter, the chapters are not long in either book, we want the reader to say, all right, I'll just turn the next two or three pages to find out what happens next. Right. And we're very fortunate that many of our readers have said that uh, once they've started, they stay up all night finishing it. And how's the journey been for you? Um, because that's something, you know, writing with your wife and, 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 and having all that happen, and now you're the one kind of out there, you know, marketing the books and, and, and doing all of that. How's that journey kind of been as an author? Because that's always something that's that's always new and, and different because, you know, you're used to sitting there and writing the books and being behind the computer and kind of being by yourself, and now all of a sudden you kind of have to be out and talk to people and, you know, meet people and, and do all that. Is, that. is that a difficult thing for you, or is it just something that's kind of natural? Well, um, it's, uh, actually, it's not difficult at all. It's, uh, it, we're very fortunate. I'm a trial and appellate lawyer. I've been a radio and television announcer. I've been a professional jazz pianist in the French Quarter. I'm a speaker and lecturer around the country. I do about 20 speeches and lectures a year. Um, I do multimedia presentations about my novels. I did one, in fact, just a few days ago in New Orleans. I'll be doing one in Irvine, California, one in Toronto, Mm -hmm. one in Jacksonville. So I I enjoy getting in front of uh, audiences and readers and fans and talking about the writing process, talking about what's the background of the book, and then giving a little reading from the book and answering questions. 
And let's talk about another character in the book too, the setting, the area down in the bayou, down in the you know in Louisiana. Now, of course, you know we we've seen there's been hundreds and, and different different things written and movies about that kind of area. But what makes it special for you? What makes what what makes you excited when when you create that character in the book and and kind of bring it to life in in your vision? Louisiana, in my view, and in my wife's view, is a central character in all our books. And the reason is it's a unique place. When you're in this state, you don't wake up and say, gee, I feel like I'm in some other city or some other area. And Louisiana is both an environmental area because it's semi-tropical, but it's also a gumbo, a, a mixture of people and places. We have Creoles. We have Cajuns. This was a, an area settled by the French, by the Spanish. We had keelboaters and privateers. We have entrepreneurs. We had free blacks. We have the terrible history of slavery and the outcome of that. We have Reconstruction. We have post-Reconstruction. We have the area of Jim Crow laws. So all of that intermingles in Louisiana, and it forms a wonderful cultural background. And so when, when readers are kind of looking at it through your eyes, and what, you know, what's one of the one things that you kind of want to you know, relay to them about the area – you know, what, what's, what's the love that kind of gets you going and, and, and the things that, you know, you want to kind of bring across? Great question. Uh, you know, when, when a reader reads a book, and, when, for example, when I read Charles Dickens or any great novel, I hate for it to end because I feel like I'm there. I mean, it's a real environment. The, the descriptions of the places and the people are so precise and so moving that, I'm almost upset that the novel's over and that I can't be there. That's the goal we have in writing these books, which is to create a background, a milieu, an environment of both place and people that you feel is a real location and that you're involved and involved not only merely in the plot, but in the characters and in the area in which they live. And in fact, I do multimedia talks to book clubs around the country, not merely in person, but I also do it via Skype and FaceTime. I'm always glad to do that. If people go to my website, they can contact me, and I'll do this with book clubs around the country. I've done them uh, 15 or 20 of these around the country via FaceTime and Skype, and I'm glad to do those anytime. And when you're talking, and that's, a, that's an interesting question, because I see a lot of authors now that do those things via Skype, and, and they do talk to book clubs and, and things. But when you're talking to them, because you, you kind of go in and, and you know, you're writing the book and, and you have the idea of, you know, this is a really important part and this is a really cool thing. And then all of a sudden you talk to these book clubs or things and you're like, wow, this is something that I didn't have an idea that they would be interested in. What kind of surprises do you get when you talk to people, you know, and you do these clubs? What, what's kind of the things or the themes that you're kind of seeing that gets them kind of excited about reading your books or reading into this genre? Well, I have two talks, one talk for those book clubs that haven't read it yet, and one talk for those that do. For those who have read my books, the question is always, what happened to this character after the book ends? Which is great, because that means that right. those characters have life to them. And in fact, for all of these books, we have the potential sequels or prequels, which we haven't yet written, but there are always the potentials out there. For those who haven't read the book, the, uh, the question is often, uh, how do you and your wife write together and are not divorced, and what's the process by which you write? And the process by which we write is easy. We actually walk at 4.30 every morning. We did it this morning, walk two or three miles. And during those walks, we talk about our characters of our next book, the plot, 
the arc of the story, and once we have the basics down, we start writing. And uh, our goal is not to write the perfect first draft. Our goal is to write the book and then perfect it afterwards. And, of course, you know, I, I mean, when you say write, now, you're writing one draft, but it's like, are, are you handling more of the scenes, you know, the scene setting dialogue, things like that? Is she coming in and, and fixing things? Are you kind of doing a framework? How how does it kind of get to be from, you, you know, are, are you guys writing separately and then putting things together? Good question. Actually, uh, I once we have the framework of the story, we don't do a formal outline, but we have, we have the framework. I'll do the first draft, then she'll work on it, then I'll work on it, then she'll work on it, and we'll go back and forth. Uh, she's a, has a background in television production for many years, so she's very good on the visuals and the scenery. As I said, I'm a lawyer in the background. I, as a pianist, I'm, a, I'm an oral person, so I'm, I'm uh, attuned to dialogue. So it, it works out really well. Hmm, that's interesting. And who, whose idea was it to uh, decide, you know what, let's, let's, um, let's, let's write some books together? Well, actually, when we started off a few years ago, our children were grown. They had moved out. They have families of their own, and we're walking. And as we're walking, we decided to keep ourselves awake. We would create stories about characters and people, and we kept notes about them. And we realized once we had this, we had enough for a book. So we said, let's try to write this all down in a book fashion. So we tried to create a story from the characters we had created. And, uh, in fact, the characters that we talked about, had backgrounds and, and descendants, and that led us to second and third and fourth books. We have uh, two more at our uh, at our agents right now, and we're working on number five. Well, that's cool. I mean, it's it's definitely you know I think you see a lot of um, collaborations, but you know between family members now. I see some, you know, I see you know um, uh, who was it? Kathy Rice is writing with like with her son and. I think the Kellermans are now writing, and of course you have Joe Hill and Stephen King, and so I think you're starting to see, you know, the the parent and the child, and and there's a couple other authors that I, people might not know, and I don't I don't want to give them out if in case you know they're not supposed to know, but you know I I know a lot of husband and wives you know that kind of write together, and you know they just put one one name on the book, but and people might not know that, but it is kind of something that is becoming a little bit more popular. I I find it I find it really interesting because. I think you get a lot of views from different things because I'm sure that you're thinking of doing one way and then your wife will be like, yeah, but what about this? And you're like, wow, I never even thought about that. That's, that's, um, that's, that's really cool. We actually never have any kind of disagreements other than do we have too much dialogue here and not enough description here? Uh, we uh, we're kind of like two sides of the same coin. We think very much alike. So we've never had any of those uh, issues as we move backwards and forwards through the drafts. Yeah. One of our, I, I, I our guess. one of our, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 please. No. Uh, one one of our pleasures, in fact, is to uh, finish uh, a draft and say, "Hey, this this really works," or to read a draft and say, "We both agree this needs a little more tweaking." I've been on a bunch of panels at, at conferences around the country, and that includes Killer Nashville, Thriller Fest, Deadly Inc., VoucherCon, all these great thriller fan conventions. And on these panels, every author will say, uh, and I'm one of them, everybody can write a novel, not everybody can finish a novel. And I think the goal is, the the goal is you have to write the first draft. Don't make, don't worry about the first draft being accurate, complete, or even continuity. 
get it all down from start to finish, then you can edit. And that's when the good work comes in, which is the editing. But the hard work is to finish it. Once you finish it, then you can edit it. Right. And then once it's edited and once it's out, the even harder part is getting people to buy it. It's, it's, it's hard to get people to buy it, and it, it's, but it's fun. I, one of the fun things we enjoy doing is going out to bookstores, to conventions, meeting people, doing events at libraries, uh, at civic clubs. It, it's one of the pleasures we have. Yeah. What's one of the things you learn at these conferences? Because, I mean, we, you know, we go, we've gone to Thriller Fest about seven times and, um, you know, voucher cons and kind of those things. And you always learn a little bit something different depending on, you know, which author panel or which, you know, you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of listening to. So what's one of the things that, that you've kind of learned that, that you bring with you into your writing? Well, I think two things. One is that, of course, every author writes differently. There is no one way to do something the right way. There are some people who plot out things far in advance and have every detail done. There are others who simply start writing not knowing where they're going to end up. There are others like us who have a general arc of the story. There are some people who like to write a certain amount every day at a certain period of time. There are others who, like us, write when we can and do it for enjoyment. Uh, there are others who find that the writing process is fun, but the publicity is painful, or vice versa. We're lucky. We have found that uh, we enjoy both the publicity and the, and the writing. But what we found is that there is no one right, one right way, R-I-G-H-T, to write, W-R-I-T-E. What you have to do is to do it at your own pace and your own style as long as you finish it. I would think probably the only controversy come up would be you would sit there and say, hey, honey, I'm writing, so you've got to figure out dinner tonight. And then she would do the same thing to you later and say, you know what, I'm writing, so now it's your turn to figure out dinner. Uh, not a, no, that doesn't work uh, for us. We normally write late at night, early in the morning. We, uh, oh, we so do a breakfast. lot of travel because of my business. <laughs> so we're, uh, we're writing on airplanes. We're writing in hotel rooms. We're writing while we're waiting for the plane. We're writing between meetings. So our goal is to write when we have time and not to try to worry about anything specific in terms of creating a time frame to write. We want to write when the mood strikes. Now, and you said, of course, that, you know, you're, you're part of the legal profession and, and that's what you do. And so then you decided, hey, I want to start writing. Was it a certain book? Was it something that really got you excited? Uh, you know, was it authors that you were reading? What, what was it about it that you decided, hey, I wanted to start writing fiction and I wanted to get into this genre? Well, I've written a number of law books. Uh, I've been involved in uh, 12 or 13 law books and treatises. And the great thing about fiction is there are no footnotes. Uh, so law books are full of footnotes. Uh, fiction is, is both easier and harder. It's easier in the sense that you're not tied to reality. You don't have to say, as in a law brief, every statement has to have a citation of authority. On the other hand, it's harder in the sense that you don't have a reality in front of you. You have to create it out of, scra out of whole thin air. So the reality you're creating has to be real enough that people can find it tangible and yet something that is moving and page-turning, because merely a description of something is boring. So who, who are the authors that kind, of got you, that kind of got you involved in this thing? Who, who are the ones that you read uh, maybe early on or, or more recently that, that kind of got you excited about you know, this, this genre? Well, I've always loved mysteries and thrillers uh, from the back of the days when I was reading all of the uh, Sherlock Holmes nonstop. But you would think that I was moved to do this through the mystery genre. It wasn't. There are other, actually, there are three writers who have inspired me. 
to do writing. One is Charles Dickens, who, as you know, wrote in a serial format. He wrote a couple of chapters at a time that were published in magazines. And mm -hmm. so he wrote things that had to have cliffhangers. And that was always inspired me as to how you could write chapters that would then say, all right, this, I got to read the next one. Uh, Mark Twain is another one. Mark Twain was able to write in a style that seems breezy and easy, and it's very difficult to do that. It's very difficult to write in a style that just flows, and Twain is wonderful in that as well as his dialogue. And the third is Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury, hmm. as you know, wrote what some people might call fantasy, science fiction. He wrote Fahrenheit 451. He wrote Dandelion Wine. He wrote The Illustrated Man. I was lucky enough to have met him and had some discussions with him. And what inspires me about him is that he shows that you can transcend a genre, that a genre does not confine a writer, that a writer can write literature within what somebody would call a genre. So all three have inspired me. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I guess the biggest question is that you kind of hinted a little bit, but uh, and I'm sure you, know, you said you had like book five kind of in the series, but is there any kind of thought – and is there anything that kind of got you excited where you maybe got a plot or whatever or something down that's going to get you outside the series? Or for the next couple of years, we're going to see you writing only within the Bayou Thriller series now? The, the, the next two books that our agent has and number five are all part of the Bayou Thriller series. And again, I don't want people to misconceive that this is, has a single person as a character. This has a single state as a character. Louisiana is the, is the bayou, the central area, the bayou state. But each book is a standalone. Each book is a thriller. Each book is page turning. And uh, that's what we love to do because we have a unique environment about which we can write. And where's the best place for people to find out more information about you? And, you know, if you're going to be in events and, and places that maybe they can meet you. Uh, they, they can go to three places. I have a Facebook page, Michael H. Rubin. And a Twitter feed, Michael H. Rubin, always put my events on there and pictures about it and links. My website, the website my wife and I have is www.mrubin, M-R-U-B as in boy, I-N, not E-N, I-N, books.com, mrubinbooks.com. It has all of the events. It also has excerpts from the books. You can read reviews of the books. You can find out more about me. We can find out how my wife and I write together. It's all there on the website. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been uh, a pleasure to speak with you. Wish you nothing but the best in the series. Can't wait to kind of read Cashed Out because the, the the first book was, was so good, um, the, uh, the Cotton Crest Curse. So thank you so much for coming on. Good luck, and we'll talk with you later. Thanks, John, and thanks to all the listeners of Suspense Magazine Radio. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Michael Rubin and the book, that is out is called Cashed Out. It is book two in his Bayou Thriller series. You can also get book one, The Cotton Crest Curse. Uh, for more information, like you said, make sure you go to mrubin, R-U-B-I-N, books.com. That's mrubinbooks.com for more information on everything that he has going on. Uh, also, just to mention, you know, there, there's some other people that got some books out. And some secrets run so deep they're worth killing for. Booklist calls this perfectly executed plot, snappy pacing, and a judicious sprinkling of dry humor. Talking by no, by no other than, of course, J.D. Robb, um, the New York Times bestseller author of her Eve Dallas series. And this one is, of course, involved in that. And the book is called Secrets in Death, 
So make sure you check out J.D. Robb's latest book, Secrets in Death. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Anne, um, or the Eve Dallas series, you know you, you might want to check that out. Also, a friend of ours here who's been around for doing quite some time, and she does a lot of indie stuff, and it's L.J. Sellers. And her latest book is called Guilt Game. And Publishers Weekly and Carson Black, they all say that, of course, this is a winner. Um, this is she's the author of her Detective Jackson, Detective Jackson mystery series, and The Extractor, a former CIA agent who rescues people with no hope, and that is Guilt Game by L.J. Sellers. So make sure you check out and check out that. Go to ljsellers.com for more information. And last but not least, here we mentioned this one is Meet an American Hero: A Rescue Gone Wrong, A Deadly Double Cross, A Desperate Race to Freedom. It can be only another than John Gilstrap, and the book is Final Target. It's the next in his special Agent Jonathan Grave mystery series or thriller series. So you want to make sure that you visit johngilstrap.com for more information on that book and all his Jonathan Graves book. We are going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with our next guest, George Bernstein. So in the meantime, here's a little musical interlude. Won't you smile?
Welcome back, everybody. After the break, we want to thank Michael Rubin for joining us. It was a pleasure to have him. We are going to transition now into our next guest. His latest book is called The Prom Dress Killer. It is a Detective Al Warren suspense novel. It is part of the series. So we want to welcome the author of that book, George Bernstein. So, George, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great, as I told you. I'm, I'm, I'm just dodging a hurricane down here. Yeah, you're down there in Palm Beach, but you're on – now it looked like around Wednesday or Thursday you're on the wrong side of the coast. Now it looks like you're on the right side of the coast. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got to be a, kind of a scary situation because it's kind of like you can see it coming, and you know it's coming – you can't do anything about it, and all you can kind of do is just try to gear up to try to get everything going. So it's almost kind of like a suspense novel. You know something's coming. <laughs> you just don't know what or when. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's something that uh, all my critics, or not critics, but my uh, my reviewers and, and my critique group have said that I do very well. You never know you never know what's coming in, in, in with my novels. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got the third book out now, and it's called The Prom Dress Killer. Um, right. And it is, like I said, the, th- the third book in your Al Warren suspense, uh, you know, mystery series. So why don't you tell everybody about what you got going on? Well, uh, I had written the first two novels, uh, um, Death's Angel and uh, Born to Die. Uh, those are those are the first two Al Warren novels. I was looking for something else to the series. And I'd always been sort of um, enamored with the uh, stories of of the Arabian Nights and Scheherazade, and I was thinking of a 20th century Scheherazade, or 21st century nowadays, because I'm sure how old I am, uh, Scheherazade um, uh, using her storytelling abilities to keep herself uh, uh, alive. And so that was the inkling of the of the book that I started out with. And... Um, uh, basically, it's uh, it's it's a serial killer who's kidnapping beautiful young redheaded girls, um, keeping them for a while, uh, calling them Camille. They don't know who, even though none, none of them are Camille. He's confused as to who they really are, and when he realizes that they're not Camille, he kills them and looks for another Camille. He's searching for Camille, um, and um, the. Uh, the story is, is is centered around a girl who who was a storyteller and, and, and also a young author and a, a real estate agent. And when he kidnaps her, she realizes what's going on and um, decides that she's going to be Camille and tell him stories, hoping that uh, during that time the Warner and his people will catch her, which catch, will catch the guy. So. You very much have a lot of psychological um, suspense aspects into this book. I mean, you have a lot of uh, things that the characters themselves are going to go through, you know, psych- psychologically speaking. So when you're getting involved and, and you're getting into, into writing these kind of characters and having to kind of do, you know, uh, getting inside of their brains like this, how is it for you as an author to kind of have to, you know, kind of, kind of write these things and, and get involved into scenarios that yourself – you know, you're not normally getting involved in and how your characters are going to react in situations that are like this. Well, it's very interesting, and I have talked to several uh, top-selling uh, 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 authors who have, have agreed that this is what happens with them. Uh, Dean Koontz is for, for one. Um, once I get into the story, I don't have to write it. The characters write it. When I'm going to sleep at night, they start talking to me. 
they tell me things about themselves that I never originally expected. I, I outline a novel uh, when I uh, when I get ready when I get going. I I, I do a chapter by chapter, uh, one or two sentence as to how to maintain a structure. But uh, that starts to change rapidly uh, once I get into the story. Um, uh, and uh, for instance, the um, the uh, antagonist in this in this novel uh, started telling me things about himself that I never expected. It made him a, made him a much worse, much more scary character than I had originally uh, uh, conceived. Uh, so it, 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 it's very interesting that this does happen all the time. <laughs> um. So for readers that are not familiar with the series, why don't you take them back to the beginning and kind of and kind of bring them forward so they can kind of have an idea of, of not only who Al Warner is, but, you know, who is George Bernstein as a writer and what they're going to experience as they kind of move for, you know forward through the series through these three books. Okay, the first novel was Death's Angel. Uh, the Midwest Book Review, which is sort of the New York Times of the Midwest, I called it a masterfully crafted suspense filler from beginning to end. Um, Al Warner is a recover, just uh, has just come back on the, uh, the job after recovering from a glancing bullet wound off of his head when he dispatched the, a previous serial killer, which was called the Baby Butcher. Um, and um, he's got uh, very bad post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, headaches and nightmares and stuff. But there's a serial killer out there who is a very magnetic, a mysterious guy who is seducing some of South Florida's youngest of my most beautiful young women. Um, uh, when, when he gets them in bed, um, after the seduction, as, he's, as they're making love, he strangles them and kills them. And uh, his final words that they hear are, the Lord calls. He thinks he's doing the service of the Lord and redeeming sinners. These are all girls who, in his mind, have sinned by ex- exposing their bodies in magazines and things of that nature. Um, Warner has got to catch this guy, and as his very commonly uh, occurs, serial killers leave very little evidence. Some of them, in fact, are never caught. Um, so he's got he's, he's low in clues. The FBI is there uh, helping, uh, but they they just keep finding new girls who are uh, who have been killed by the guy, and he leaves he leaves the uh, classic um, red lipstick message, usually on a mirror, but sometimes in more creative places. Um, uh, telling them that it's him, basically. Um, and so Warner struggles through this, and he's got a, a girlfriend that he's in love with who's a high-class uh, public defender. Uh, Warner is a very tough, street, streetwise kind of a guy, uh, so they're sort of have, uh, oil and water, but they love each other. Um, and so he's got a lot of personal problems with her because of differences in, in, uh, in justice, the theories of justice, um, and um, uh, all these things are interacting, uh, and, and he's struggling the whole time with, with very bad sleep, terrible nightmares, wake, wakes up drained. Uh, but in the end, um, after he splits his girlfriend, they get back together. He's coming to, uh, to protect her because she did something that makes her now a target for this killer. Um, who, is, who is, calls himself the angel of death uh, 
uh, actually, uh, Angel of God. Uh, his name is Angie Dedios, and if you break it down, it's Angel de, de, de Dios, uh, mm-hmm. which is the Angel of God. Uh, and uh, uh, he and Warner have a confrontation at, at the Sharon's apartment, and the killer is killed, and Warner again gets a bullet wound off off the side of his head. Uh, so... Uh, and then there's an aftermath of the story, and I don't want to give there's you know too much will be giving it away. And the sure. next story uh, is Born to Die. Warner is recovering from that from that last accident. Is on um, medical leave. Uh, meets a young nurse uh, uh, who is uh, very concerned that too many six-month-old baby boys of, from Palm Beach Gentry are dying of sudden infant death syndrome called SIDS. Right. Uh, he, they can't think of any mode or opportunity why anybody would do this. Who, what could they gain? But meantime, it does seem like too many are dying, and um, so he agrees to help while he's while he's on on leave. And uh, that story winds down to the again a confrontation in the end, um, and that leads up to. Uh, uh, there are things that happen at that story meeting. Uh, 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 this girl and then a new a new woman, and and that's all carried into uh, now uh, the the final story. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm in the middle of the fourth story now. And that's what I was going to add coming coming up too. So you know, you, this this is a series that, that that you're going to have ongoing. You don't really have like uh, an end in sight, I guess you want to say. No, no. There, uh, I'm, I'm writing the fourth. I've got a couple of, uh, of ideas from the fifth. Uh, it's kind of interesting because when I wrote my first novel, Trapped, uh, which is about a woman in, in what's called locked-in syndrome, where she's basically comatose from an anesthetic accident, but her, but her brain works and her eyes work. Um, and I had uh, uh, written a, a extensive side plot dealing with the Chicago Mafia in that in that book. Uh, and when it won a uh, small publisher's Next Great American Novel contest, they oh. they suggested that I remove that that side plot and and we change some things around in the book. Uh, and so that side plot is now part of the fourth novel. <laughs> Only changed <laughs> from Chicago to to Miami. Kind of like it's kind of like in the musician, kind of like the B side. It's like, oh, you know, it's something that kind of, you know, it kind of gives you that B side. Uh, you didn't really know what was going to happen, and then, wow, it shows up in, in kind of like another album. <laughs> yeah, well, writers never throw anything away. We always look for look for that was a good idea. Where can I use it later? Yeah, you look for the opening to kind of be able to fit it into into something because you know you want to get it out there. You're just not really sure how you're going to get it out there. Yeah, I worked very hard on that part of the plot. So when when I when a couple of agents and editors told me I had a, that I should remove it, that it detracted from the story, I say, well, you know, if if I'm hearing that from more than one expert, I better do it. So I did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's that's cool. So I guess you know, are you having a lot of fun? Oh yeah, uh, I, I I love the writing. Uh, my wife gets sort of aggravated at me that like, she thinks I spend too much time at a computer. But she was the one originally when we were uh, able to retire fairly early in 1990. Said to me, uh, you know, you hate golf and 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 you don't want to play cards with the guys. Why don't you write a novel? I was always a good storyteller, so that that's when I started writing Trapped. 
Ah, okay. I got you. It was a a Next Great American novel winner and an Amazon Top 100 novel. It only only took 22 years to get there. (laughs) And then you, um, you know, you... uh, you know, when, when you go to these conferences and, and when you kind of go out and, and and go out to to you know to kind of meet people and do things and and, and and craft your writing, you know, I kind of asked Michael the last time, and it's like, you know, what are the things that you uh, you know are excited about when you go to these conferences? You know, what are the things that you kind of learn? Uh, and you know, not only meeting fans, but just crafting your writing and, and meeting masters. Well, that's very interesting that you said that because uh, uh, a lot of people ask me, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, how do I get started in writing a novel? And one of the things that I tell them is go to conferences because there's a lot of classes at conferences that will teach you things. I took my wife to some of my early conferences that I went to, and she attended classes, and she went there enjoying lots of books and movies that she saw. And she came out of there realizing that most of them were nearly as good as she thought they were. Uh, she learned what made good writing, and she's become a very a stern critic of mine. Um, I was at a seminar uh, run by uh, Donald Moss, who is a top fiction uh, agent. Um, and uh, one of the things he said to us was, all right, we all had, had uh, things that we were working on. I said, what's the worst thing that can happen to your protagonist? So we thought about some things. We wrote some stuff down. We read it to class. He said, okay, that's interesting. So now he said, tell me, what could be worse than that? Wow. So we had to figure out something that was going to even be worse than what we thought was already the worst thing. <laughs> so when we finally got, came up with that, he said, okay, now what could be even worse than that? Uh, so um, one of the things we learned is, is that you really have to create tension, and it can't be uh, a half-page uh, thing. Um, uh, I've got I've got scenes where tense things happen that go on for four or five chapters, and 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 uh, you know you got things got to keep getting worse and worse and worse until they get better. Um, and I'm in a uh, critique group of some other published authors, and one of the things that they all acknowledge that I bring to the group is I keep telling you, you know you didn't do that you did that way too quick. You know, one wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, that was all over with. You, you, you got to drag that out. And uh, and uh, so a lot of times uh, it's the things you got to have somebody else help you see. Now, before you wrote, you know, what 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 you said you retired kind of early. Like, like what were you involved in? Like, what was the business you were involved in? Was it was it something having to do that people will see in the books or something totally just different? Well, there is something to do in some of the books, uh, especially Trapped, because when I uh, I have I'm considered uh, without breaking my arm, beating myself in the back here, I'm considered a world class fly, fly fisherman. I've held uh-huh. uh, a big a baker dozen world records. I wrote a book about catching pike and muskie on flies, which is called Tooth and Critters Love Flies. Uh, that um, uh, you know. Seven or eight years ago, it's still it's still uh, uh, selling quite well. Um, considered one of the you know classic books of, on that subject, which has become pretty popular. So what I did was I ran a fishing and hunt. When we moved to Florida from Chicago, I ran a fishing and hunting tour business, and I sent people to on, on relatively exotic fishing trips and hunting trips all around the world. 
and I had the dirty job of having to go to all those places first and 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 check out the facilities and the fishing and everything. So it was you know, so a bad job that I had to go do all that fishing um, while I was setting up my chores. But I did that for, I don't know, 15 years um, after we moved to Florida. Uh, and um, uh, actually wrote to the Critters of the Flies as part of a reason because I knew that I could get that published because it was, uh, I had strong credentials there. It's nonfiction. Um, and I thought that would help me uh, find an agent for um, for my fiction once I had some bona fides in writing all the other things that were already published. Okay, fly fishing. I'm intrigued. Um, uh, I, know, I know what it is, but I never understood how... You throw that thing in the water so fast and bring it out, how that fish is going to grab it. Well, uh, <laughs> the fly fishing I do a lot of, which is fishing for pike or muskie, uh, you, you, you cast in a big, long fly that looks like a minnow or something else as a fish mice. Sometimes you, have, you don't know what it looks like, but the fish life seems to like it. Uh, and, and you actually see a lot of these fish swimming in shallow water, and you cast it in front of them, and you, oh. and you bring it in very slowly. Um, and one of the advantages for fishing for pike and muscular flies is, number one, they're not afraid of the boat. You, they, a lot of times they'll strike a fly right at the boat. I've actually had two fish. One was 23 pounds, one was 25 pounds. Leap next dear. to the boat and grab the fly as I was lifting it out of the water. Uh, uh, right at the side of the boat and grab the fly. And if you don't think... That's an adrenaline rush. You don't know what an adrenaline rush is. <laughs> I mean, cause that's like totally unexpected. All of a sudden, you just see this fish jumping out and grabbing this, you know, like you said, like kind of whatever, you know, thing it is. Yeah, that's, three and a half or four foot long fish bursting out of the water. And a lot of times they'll strike me right next to the boat with a big swirling splash. Very exciting. Um, so that's different from trout fishing. Uh, which is most people most people put together with fly fishing, and what, where fly fishing originally started um, in England, uh, basically with Isaac Walton, um, where oh. uh, you, you, you cast a fly and it's got to float over where the fish is, and it, after it's gone a few feet, you can pick it up and cast it again because because uh, water current makes the fly look look unnatural, and you, you've gone past where the fish are anyhow. When, you, uh, when you're fishing for pike, they're 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 following that thing. Um, I've had one time where a pike followed a fly right up to the boat, I was, and I was jigging the fly in the water. And she kept looking at it, and the guy put the boat in slow reverse, and we kept moving away. And I kept jigging this fly for almost two minutes, and then the pike came over and ate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fishing stories never get old. I'm telling you, right? <laughs> they just don't get. At all, For you sure. can consider just you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories. I mean, I, the one thing I've always been curious about too, and and I, and I don't mean to harp on the fish then, but this is just so interesting and it's just so good. Is just does it really make a difference of the color? I mean, you hear people say, oh, you know, different colors at different times. I've heard this and that. I mean, does it make a difference, or is that just really in people's head? 
I think it depends a lot on what you're fishing for and and um, I mean, can, can, can uh, a fish see color? I guess is the thing yes, too. Yes, yes. They, they've they, they've now discovered that they used to used to think no, but now they know that that's not true. They may not see it the same way we see it, but they see color. And the, the problem is, see, one of the things that uh, and I did, did I mentioned this in my in my book in the beginning of my book, Truth and Critters Love Flies, is that. Um, a lot of people, especially if they saw movies like like A River Runs Through It, you know, a lot of the so-called yuppies got into. This sounds like a great, interesting thing to do, and they went to the Orvis Company has schools on fly casting and fly fishing. So they go for a week and learn how to fly cast, learn how to present a fly to a trout, <clears throat> go out in a trout stream and fish, and don't catch anything, because trout is a lifetime learning experience, um, and you can be on a stream where 16 different kinds of flies are hatching at the same time. They're coming up from the water as nymphs. They get to the top, they hatch into a bug and fly off. Um, and the trout are eating the emerging nymph of one of those flies, and that's all they're eating. They won't touch anything else. And if you don't have the right, right one and present it properly, you're not going to catch anything. With uh, fishing for pike, smallmouth bass, which I enjoy, uh, they're aggressive, very aggressive fish. And when they're ready to eat, they're going to eat whatever is, whatever is there. Now, occasionally, when they're not so ready to eat, color seems to make a difference. There is actually a lot that goes into fishing that I just really had no idea about. Oh yeah, fishing is a is a uh, very complex a lot of sport. Yep, uh, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of experience goes into it. Yeah, I I so run a. When, so uh, so when you're putting items like this in the book, and you're writing about stuff like this, and for people like me that have, you know, no idea except you put the worm on the hook, you put the hook in the water, you have the bobber, and when the thing goes under, you know you got a fish. How are you explaining it to to, to dumb people like me? Well, it's just you know you just write a sequence of what happens. Uh, there was a. You know, a fishing scene in Trapped, which is, uh, um, uh, I don't know how many pages in, in quite a few chapters, where this uh, uh, comatose woman is, is in a wheelchair and, they, and her, and her uh, 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 care, caregiver takes her and her two children out on a big pontoon boat just to get her out, and they, and they do a little fishing. The kids, the kids like to fish, and, and he's there uh, with... Uh, with uh, also, the girl's the, the the protagonist's husband's mistress, who who has got a thing for the caregiver. Um, so they're anyhow. I don't want to get into all that, but they're out in the boat and and uh, and uh, they're uh, and they're fishing. The kids are catching little fish, and they catch the bigger fish, and and they get back in an area where. One of the kids hooks a, a very big fish. And meanwhile, the boat won't, stops working, and a big storm comes, and he's fighting this muskie, and the and and the boat's uh, swamping, and they're being and they're and they're rushing towards shore, and uh, and she's in a wheelchair, uh, unable to move. You know, so there's a lot of things going on, and the cell phone falls falls out and it get, just uh, falls overboard, so they can't call for help. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that goes on. Um, and that, and uh, then lightning's striking all around them. So, but anyhow, the the fishing uh, scene, you know, just describe what's going on. Hmm. Well, and, George, and that's a I'll great scene in the book. 
I mean, I tell you, it's been fascinating to talk with you and, and talk about your, your Al Warner series. So let everybody know the best place for them to find out about more information about everything that you got going on. Well, they can go to my website, which is uh, georgeabernstein.com. I also have an Amazon page, which is Amazon slash dot com slash author slash George A. Bernstein. And you need to get my middle middle initial in there because there's plenty, lots of George Bernsteins out there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, all my all my things are there. On my website does a lot of frequently asked questions about the writing and things of that nature, and and uh, short uh, excerpts about the books. Um, uh, and uh, they're all available on Amazon, both in print and in uh, as ebooks. And actually, Trapped, A uh, Third Time to Die, which is my second novel, and the first Warner novel, Death's Angel, are also all available as audio. And we're just getting ready to produce uh, Born to Die as audio. Well, George, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Wish you nothing but the best coming up with the, you know, your series and everything you got going on. So thank you so much for coming on, and, and have fun. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure, and I enjoy talking with you. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author George Bernstein. Make sure you check out the book, The Prom Dress Killer. It is available now. It is the book three in his Al Warner uh, detective series. So make sure you check out all of that that you have going on. We are going to, you know, very excited about our next guest, but first we've got to tell you about Ocean View Publishing and some of the autumn thrills that they have coming out, which is, you know, The Fifth Reflection by Alan Kirschman, The Last Girl by Danny Lopez, Into a Dark Frontier by John Manigan, and then Seven Suspects by Renee James. Make sure you visit OceanViewPub.com to see why those books and many others from Ocean View are, uh, you know, kind of climbing up the charts. It's really great to kind of see that, uh, you know, uh, Ocean View and, and their authors going on, which include, you know, D.P. Lyle and Philip Donnelly, uh, to mention some others. Also, Patricia Bradley is back with her book, Justice Buried. It is the sequel to Justice Delayed. Patricia Bradley will keep you guessing and looking over your shoulder. Uh, Robin Carell, best-selling author of the Bayou series and Evil series, says Pat Bradley's Justice Buried takes right, take readers on a wild ride with twists and turns, if you love gripping romantic suspense, this one is not to be missed. Uh, that is by Ravel Books. Make sure you go to ptbradley.com for more information. We are going to take, again, another quick break. We're going to be back with our next guest. Very, very in, uh, excited to talk with Thomas Keish. Um, I think that you'll be uh, very intrigued uh, with his story coming up. So in the meantime, take a quick listen to this. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everybody, here after uh, a little bit of a break, and we are halfway through. I want to thank Michael Rubin and George Bernstein for being on the show, and we are going to be lined up here with our next hour with author Thomas Keish, and then followed up by New York Times bestselling author Erica Spindler to finale out the show. Um, We got this email from uh, a publicist, and it was – very intriguing. You know, we, we weren't familiar with Thomas Keish. I mean, you know, we weren't really familiar with, with, with any of his work and who he was. And then we realized uh, when we got this email, it was like, oh, we got we to gotta get him on and get him involved in this because uh, his background is a retired assistant uh, attorney general for the state of Maryland. And he's represented the State Board of Physicians for 16 years uh, in attempt to discipline doctors who were sexual predators, along with many other things. I mean, not right there alone get you excited so his book is called doc doc zeus which is just funny when you when you hear about it but it's very serious when you get into it and it is a book on white coat crime so we want to welcome author thomas keish here so thomas thank you so much for coming on how you doing oh thank you for having me on i'm really glad to be there so again you know when we got that email from the publicist and I was so happy that we were able to I was like oh this is intriguing let me look it up and then when I started looking and looking and getting into a little bit more I was like wow this is definitely you know a man who has seen a lot and put it into a book here Doc Doc Zeus so why don't you give everybody uh, a taste of what you have going on you know within the book when the book I have uh, a crime which is a physician sexually preying on his patients. And I have it from three points of view. The first point of view is from a patient herself, a a teenage girl. Um, The second point of view is a doctor himself who is not somebody who's uh, nuanced. He is a complete narcissist and uh, somewhat of a sociopath. And the third point of view is from a novice investigator at the Board of Physicians who is getting hints that this is happening in fact, becomes sure that it's happening, but he is blocked every time he tries to bring uh, Zeus to justice. And justice, in this case, doesn't mean anything about the police. It just means possibly losing your medical license, because that's all that this particular board that he works for can do. Mm-hmm. So I try to give a complete picture. You know, nobody can give a complete picture I try to at least give people the feeling of how it would be to be on all sides of the equation, uh, especially the victim, the teenage victim. There's another victim in there also, though. And what it feels to be like the other side, the investigator, trying to prove this case. It's a really, really hard type of thing to prove. It happens in private. Uh, No one else is uh, usually there. the record of it is totally created by the predator physician, so you're not going to find anything in the record that uh, uh, incriminates him. And the patients are often compromised people themselves. They're, they're people who have problems. People don't go to a doctor unless they have problems. And they're, um, they're often uh, psychological problems, and, and patients know that will all be used against them if they complain. And that's Another question, if they do complain, um, it's very often that 
it goes on for quite a while before the patients complain. Uh, very often they don't realize what's happening for quite a while. Uh, there's different kinds of predation, of course, but um, very often, amazingly enough, they feel guilty because it, by the time they figure out what's going on, they feel like, well, they've been doing it too. And sometimes they feel like, oh, I I seduced this good man or I did something that made him want to do this to me. Uh, it's really amazing. And, you know, lots of times this happens and then a patient finally complains. And sometimes during the process they find out, you know, there's seven or eight other people who have complained. So, but the complaints are confidential, so they won't know that going in. So it's uh, it's really a difficult case to prove. And then, you know, there are false claims too. So, of course, the sure. doctor has his due process rights. Yeah. And it, it's always a hearing. It has to be proven, you know, by testimony under oath, uh, which at the minimum is very embarrassing for the patient. Um Everything that can be brought up about their medical treatment will be brought up and, and used against them. On the other hand, um, like I said, often if a patient complains, they'll find that many other people have complained too. And sometimes it's just, you know, a great, big, massive ball of complaints finally convinces people we've got to do something about this. Um, but it doesn't work legally that way, but, I mean, behind the scenes to say we've got to do something about this. Legally, each case has to be proved separately. Um, and that can be done, but the, the the will to go ahead and do that comes when people realize that this this guy, and usually 84% of the time it's a guy, um, this guy is really uh, a danger, and we've got to, got to do something about this. That was a long answer to a short question, I realize. <laughs> well, no, but, you know, the, the thing is, I'm sitting here thinking, when, when you're talking about it, this, this, this almost sounds like some kind of a system that is geared to help the doctor more than it is to help the victim uh, in this case. It, it's, almost, it's almost like, uh, you know, doctors can continue to do this and do this and do this for quite some time before – it's ever, you know, before they're ever caught, you know, and before they're ever, you know, brought, brought to justice. And, and there's, you know, dozens, you know, of victims and things that, that are having to live with this that might really have no idea what's going on. So when you're putting together a book like this and you're trying to get all that emotion, because there's so much emotion that is with, uh, you know, this type of a topic, how are you able, you know, to put yourself in those positions because you are on the side of trying to capture those guys. So you are on, you are not on the victim side. You are on the side of, we need to save the victim. How was that for you to have to kind of get in and get down into the down and dirties of this? Well, it's easy. I mean, my knowledge of it uh, comes um, literally from reading transcripts, transcripts of hundreds of interviews of hearings um, administrative uh, law judge hearings and also interviews of the physicians also. And you tend to start to see patterns of how people um, react 
how they are so reluctant to, you know, come forward. And I really think the majority of people where this happens to, and I'm not condoning this, but I totally human, understandable. And the majority just say, oh, my God, I'm never going back to him again. And that's the end of the story. We, we actually had one woman who was one of seven complainants against a physician who said that, you know, this is, I'm not going, ever going back to him again. And that went on for some time. And then years later, her daughter said, oh, I think I'm going to go to him as my physician. That's when she complained. She finally, you know, she sees the big picture there, you know, and there's other people's and other people's daughters going. And, um, you know, more power to her. She did complain, and it was very successful. Um, But it's so uh, personal and embarrassing that it's, it's, it's very difficult to come forward. But believe me, the people at the board, at least the medical board I work worked with in Maryland, they are so conscious of how embarrassing it is to the patient, and they are so careful to, you know, help them along in the process, um, assure them of something such as their name will never become public. And um, it, it needs to be done, and they, they, they probably do have the courage to do it. <laughs> In my book, they don't all have the courage to do it, uh, but one does. And, um, you know, that keeps the, the thing going forward. So so give us the insight of who is Hartwig Zeus. Uh, you know, who, who exactly is, um, you know, the, 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 this guy? You know, where where did he come from? I mean, I'm sure he came from, you know, uh, the, the many doctors that, that you had uh, you know, seen him maybe prosecutor through, throughout your years, but or, or maybe he's a combination of, of a couple different ones. But but give us the idea of who he is. He's a person who um, has no respect for women. Um, his father was pretty much absent as a child, although he supported the family until he died when this was in high school. He has no respect for his mother. He said she does nothing. His father did work, you know, his mother did nothing. He's very bright in high school, didn't socialize a lot except with one uh, girl who he essentially ended up trading uh, cocaine for sex with, mm-hmm. and then who disappeared and he never thought of again. Um, he was very bright in college. He successfully uh, went through medical school, passed his boards on the second try, had an affair with uh, a nurse that he kept on intermittently year after year, even uh, after he was married. And he is totally self-centered. And he is, I mean, I've read the definition of a narcissist. He's a complete narcissist. He does make a lot of money for his practice, and they like him for that. They don't like him that he still hasn't paid his part of the partnership. They don't like that the patients complain that he rushes through. Mm-hmm. They don't like that he parks in their parking spots. Um, but guy's he's got issues. And <laughs> guy's got 
issues. Let's face it. I mean, the guy's got some serious yeah. issues going on in his head. You made him a you made a hell of a complex character. But he's uh, there are people like that. Uh, oh yeah, total narcissistic people, and I've seen a few of them, and it's amazing how absolutely nothing phases them. Nothing phases them. They have an answer for everything. Um, they're not worried. They have no anxieties. They go through life and and get what they want. And there's a lot of people like that. They're not just all doctors, but doctors are in a position where if you are a doctor and you are one of those people, you really have a lot of fences around you protecting you from uh, problems. One of those is money, if you have a lot of money, and the sure. other is respect. And the other is for any, anything that happens within the uh, within the uh, examination room, it, you know, it's your word against some flaky patient's word. It, mm-hmm. it was which is how the defense uh, would frame it. So you're in a good position to do that, and do that meaning prey on uh, female patients if that's uh, your inclination. Um, and I tried to, uh, quote, round out his character. I mean, he has other very, very typical narcissistic symptoms. Uh, he has schemes going against insurance companies and schemes going with the hospital. He's also um, has his own laboratory to whom he refers all his patients for laboratory testing. Um, of course, I kind of threw in threw in everything. The, the, guy, the guy's everything. creating an Amazon monopoly. <laughs> 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 what he's doing? He's creating an Amazon monopoly. He's buying labs, so you have to go to his lab, and he's doing this. So you have to go to this. It's kind of like you know, Amazon buying Whole Foods. Got to shop here now. Got to shop here. So yeah. He's a very complex kind of character. So you made it very easy for people not to like him, which is a great emotional response that a reader is going to get because you're like, I want him dead. But then he just keeps (laughs) doing his bad things. And so I'm sure fans, when they read this, are probably like, I hate him. And why don't you kill him, you know, in like some weird way or so, you know, because he's like, he deserves it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what some of the people who reviewed it have said. You really yeah. hate this character. But the Which is great. That's like what this. you want to hear as an author. <laughs> but I wanted to watch him for a while. You know, he's very resilient. He's very sure. bright. And um, he has the advantage of not being bound by the truth. So he can keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And, you know, I... No, I'm not. This is not an original idea in the sense of a narcissist, but I, I wanted to put him in that position and see him against the kind of earnest uh, investigator um, who's trying his best but is brand new at his job and against a teenage girl who really is quite strong underneath but just doesn't really have enough, enough experience to know exactly what's going on. So between the three of them, you know, I was kind of hoping – I could get uh, a plot that, first a plot that moved along and intermixed these three characters, you know, in a way that would illustrate something about, from three different angles about, you know, predation on on patients. So how was the book kind of born? How how did this kind of come out? I mean, you, you you, you had so much material you were kind of pulled from and so many different things that you could have done. You know, what was the interest in, in writing this story this time and with these characters? You know, it was, <laughs> it was funny. 
the female character, uh, Diane, was she's 16 years old at the beginning of this book. She actually was a minor character in another book I wrote, Pray for Love. And as a minor character, her her story just kind of petered out. She was 14 years old and pregnant, and she had decided she's not marrying her boyfriend. She's not having an abortion. And that was the end. And I just left her there, and I, I kept thinking, well, what happened to her? I, I liked her so much. I thought, I'm going to continue her story somehow. But then, you know, I, I keep telling everybody, all my friends, all these stories about the medical board and doctors and stuff that happens. And they keep, you know, keep saying, you've got to put that in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fit it all. How are, these, how are these two going to work together? And I thought, oh, this would be perfect mm-hmm. if she uh, if she would be the person that's the subject of the whole medical board uh, procedure. And if she would be matched up with an equally strong person, but who's a really um, – pretty much an evil person mm-hmm. and what would happen you know and that's and as in I'm sure most novels will tell you I wasn't sure what was going to happen when I started it um, you know you have to write for a while and sometimes you write for quite a while and you say that wouldn't happen <laughs> that doesn't work that wouldn't happen in real life um, and sometimes you say, oh, yes, of course, this is what would happen. Mm-hmm. So you just have to kind of feel, you have to kind of feel your way along. But I ended up with the three points of view, you know, the teenager, the doctor, and the investigator. And it's pretty much they alternate chapters. And I, I thought it worked pretty well. Um, there's other victims whose work, whose um, case history is, uh, comes in through a transcript that the investigator is reading. And that's uh, sprinkled throughout the thing, and you gradually see what happened to that other victim too. And she also has a small part at the end of the end of the book. So um, people are supposed to hate him, and supposed to hope uh, that he gets his due. But they're they're appreciated, I hope, by the end. You know how difficult it really is to uh, get somebody to get their due. You know, in these circumstances. Now, is this something that you're going to be doing uh, more in your career? Is this are these the type of books that, that you're going to be getting involved in, or uh, is was this just a one-off? Oh no, <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to write the same book over and over with different names. Now, a lot of all of my books have been very different, but I really the the concept of uh, uh, medicine and Law and where it's, at the medical board is kind of where the two come together, medical medicine and law, mm-hmm. um, and the kind of things that happen in investigations, um, the kind of things that happen in hospitals. Yeah, I think it's, I'm going to be doing something about that. I have a lot more material, and uh, I'm going to be doing something about that in the future. When I finished any particular book, though, like this one, I felt like this is all I got to say. This is everything I've, I need to say about this. But as you go along and I start my next book, you know, more things come. They come to, oh, I've got to do something on that. Oh, I've got to do something on that. Right. So really, I mean, it's a novel. It's not an expose or anything. I mean, it's supposed to be entertaining. 
Um, but I'm trying to do the same, do two things at once, you know, entertain, yeah. but also show you this whole side of life. I mean, with your experiences, I, I mean, how dark could you have gotten? Oh. You know, because it, have, you, you only, you don't see a lot of stories, I guess, like this in the news, but you know that they're out there. So, so how dark could you have gotten, basically? Well, we have physicians who have murdered um, people. Um, we have physicians who have gotten their patients pregnant and then performed abortions on them. Um, okay, this sounds like law and order, so that stuff really happens. Like under, I don't want to go under anesthesia anymore. Now I'm a man, but I, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing about anesthesia, there's usually about seven people standing around you doing different things. The worst things always happen one on one. And you know, a great number of doctors, uh, especially OBGYNs, which means obstetrics and gynecologists, um, yeah. have someone present in the room as a chaperone. Um, it's not required, at least in Maryland, it's not required by law, but a lot of people do it just to avoid, you know, any misunderstandings and things like that. Huh. Uh, yeah, I just, now, when, there's so many questions you could go. Um, when you're looking at it from, like, the patient's point of view and you're putting that in here into the book, and, again, the book is called Doc, Doc, Zeus. Um, so when you're putting kind of the patient's point of view and, and you're having to, like you said, you know, you wanted these three things, you wanted these three, you know, people involved with the doctor and the patient, you know, the, the investigator, is there some pushback, you know, with an investigator kind of knocking on your door, kind of wanting to bring these things up? Uh, you know, what, what do you kind of see the victim and their reactions? Well, as I said, it's, it's often usually not the first time something has happened. Uh, some victims uh, come in fairly early and say, the doctor did this. Uh, and and they're, not, they're not all afraid to speak up, and they're not all embarrassed. But many of them sure. are. Um, they generally don't want to talk about it. It's usually a long. It's usually a long time ago, especially in one of these cases where you build up, you know, five, six, seven patients. The seventh patient is, is probably a long time ago, and they rather just they mostly they just want it to go away. They don't want to think about it. Um, what often happens a lot is, as a result, though, they go into uh, therapy, and um, sometimes the therapist reports it. First of all, I have this patient who said, you know, she was molested. And that's kind of a sticky situation because the patient didn't come herself. But, you know, often, oftentimes those things work out okay. The patient realizes that as part of the uh, curing process, you really should, you know, confront the situation and say this happened, at least complain. You know, maybe nothing will happen, but if I complain, you know, if I complain, at least I've done what I can do. And, you know, I think it helps in the uh, in the recovery process. 
is there is there one other character outside of of the main three that that really intrigued you that had like a bigger voice than you thought maybe that they were going to have when you started writing the book? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a character Oof. who uh, a guy his name is Woody who has a very sketchy past, um, but who from <laughs> Who this the, the patient Vic uh, turns has a his, somewhat of a history with him. Uh, he sold her drugs in the past, and she's in this uh, new school, and she doesn't really have any friends. And she sees him in the hallway one day. He I didn't intend for him to be any major character, and he wasn't the major character, but. You know, he turned out to be, and this, and I don't feel like I invented this. It just seemed to happen. He turned out to be her one real friend who had some kind of a perspective on the world and wasn't moralistic or judgmental or anything, but he knew in his heart what was right. And he really, he helped over a long period of time and very gradually, you know, he helps her. And uh, that surprised me too. <laughs> nice. Um, well, I'll tell you what. It really uh, happens. Thomas, it has been an absolute joy to speak with you on the phone. I mean, it's a very, very sensitive topic, uh, but, you know, it's very well done here in your latest book, Doc, Doc, Zeus. Um, and, and I love the fact of your experience and everything that, that you're able to kind of put into the book um, and give people that real-life sense of, of, you know, of what is going on. So, again, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a, uh, a real pleasure. And realnicebooks.com is, is the website that people need to uh, – that people need to go to, to, to find out more information. Yeah. It's also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Right. Yeah. So, all right, Thomas. Well, thank you so much. You have a great day and we will talk with you later. Okay. Thank you very much for having me on. Sure. Bye-bye. So again, everybody, make sure you go check out the book. It is called Doc, Doc Zeus. Um, It's, it's, it, it's kind of, you know, the, the subject matter is one that, you know, it, it, it's scary, but it's very, very well done. And, and I'm sure that you guys are going to really love the fact that, you know, what Thomas has done, like I said, being able to bring into his experience into this uh, being involved in as a, you know, as an assistant uh, attorney general for the state of Maryland for, for so many years and handling these crimes. So we're going to take another quick short break, and then we are going to be back here with our last guest, of course, New York Times bestselling author, Erica Spindler will join us to talk about her latest book, The Other Girl. So you don't want to miss that. So here you go.
welcome everybody here after the break, and we want to thank all of our guests that have been on here, starting off with Michael Rubin and George Bernstein and then Thomas Keish. And now we are going to finish it up with the finale. She is the, she's the showstopper here, so she's going to close it out. New York Times bestselling author Erica Spindler talking about her other book, The Other Girl, which had just come out August 22nd. So you can find out wherever you want to find books and wherever books are sold. So, Erica, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and, you know, we were thinking, it's been a couple of years since we've had you on, so it's great to be able to bring you back. Um, you know, you got another very intriguing, very um, suspense-filled, uh, you know, thriller book here. So why don't you give everybody a little taste about what you got going on in this one? Oh, okay. I'd love to. Um, you know, the la- my last few books I've really uh, kind of settled into the, the – or been intrigued by the idea of uh, small southern towns and the secrets and the – the judgments people have against each other in small southern towns. And uh, this this book is really about uh, a, a young woman's search for justice. Uh, that's a theme that I've had recurring in, in some of my novels. And, um, you know, a girl that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, um, you know, uh, she had, she had, she's kind of a wild child or her brothers were wild, her daddy was no good, you know, that kind of story. And, <laughs> Um, something, you know, a traumatic in- incident uh, happens, a crime, and um, when she reports it, no one believes her. So that, you know, that's just kind of the basic germ of the story. Um, but what what really got me on this particular story is I live in a small southern town, not quite as rural as, as the, the one I portrayed in The Other Girl, but... Um, we had one, you know, one Friday afternoon news report came out in my little bedroom community that there was an attempted abduction of a, a little girl uh, walking home from the bus stop. And, you know, the community was in, you know, was up in arms, of course, and and um, it was all over the news. And for several days, everybody was looking for the car this girl described. And then all of a sudden, it just went quiet. And, um, you know, a few months later, all of a sudden, the... the uh, the sheriff's department, the sheriff, you know, he's on he's on the TV and he tells everyone, he says that this girl lied, that she made the Whoa. whole story up. Yeah. And so at the time I was like, wait, what? He is, you that know. That's an author thinking. Yeah. Wait, what? That's exactly. That's where my favorite books come from is that, that yep. moment. And it's like, what? This little girl, everybody ended up knowing who she was, you know. She was, you know, everybody, you know, in school and her neighbors and her family, they were interviewed and, you know, there was all this. So to expose a child that way was just unconscionable, I thought. And I thought at the time, it's like, if he just, you know, if they're just trying to, they never found this guy, so maybe they're making it up, whatever, you know. Um, but, but, but I guess the thing that intrigued me the most was the idea of, what if no one believed you? How would that change your life? What if suddenly, you know, your whole life changed, no one believed you, your family, your neighbors, your, you know, uh, your schoolmates? How would that shape the rest of your life? Um, so it kind of took off from there. And, of course, uh, my character, Randy, is a, a teenager uh, when something happens to her this summer night. Um, so it's a little different. Um, but that's kind of what I was going for. 
What if no one believes you? And it's really true, you know, because I thought about that little girl. Maybe this really did happen. What? I can see her parents trying to get her therapy to convince her it didn't happen because the police said it didn't happen. So... Right. I mean, that that's the exploration that that you have to go into as an author, you know, to kind of get into, you know, different characters' heads. Because, you know, not only are you having to work, you know, with, um, you know, with, with the main character and, the, and, the, and this girl that no one believes, but it's everyone else around just constantly trying to, you know, let her know, well, this didn't really happen. And so her struggle, and then she almost starts really wanting to doubt herself. But, you know, how was the, the, the challenges, you know, that you were facing as an author, you know, having to kind of handle, you know, that situation? That, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, the, the, the challenging part of writing a book like this and the fun part is how you have to, like you say, build all the characters around her. What, you know, what is that environment? What are the challenges? You know, psychologically, what happens to her? How does that change her life? Well, you know, and you have to make it make sense. You have to have the reader buy into it. So I think it's like the uniquely human experience, and it has to make sense, and your character has to grow and change. So I knew that it was like, I'm really intrigued with the idea of people getting stuck. You know, you get stuck at something, something big happens in your life, and you kind of get stuck. And instead of going one direction, you might have gone. You go in a whole different direction because something happened to you. And I felt like this character that, you know, she wanted to prove her innocence. She wanted to prove that she was worthy, that she was, you know, a good person and a solid citizen and trustworthy. So it just kind of changed her whole life. She took a whole other direction with her life. So, um I, does that answer your question? I tend to Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, 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 you know, yeah, it does. And, and it's just, you know, it, it's it's one of those things, you know, because you have so many books under your belt. I mean, you know, you've written so many books. And, and for you to try to have to sit down, you know, again and, and realize that, you know, of course, this is your job and this is what you're doing, but you also have to be excited about it. So what was – you know, what is the thing that, that, that kept you excited about writing this book as you were going through? And, you know, what was the one thing that, that you want the readers to kind of get a grasp of Erica Spindler, you know, in your writing now in, in 2017 compared to maybe, you know, 2007, 10 years ago? Uh, that's a great question. That's, um, I really loved this book when I was writing. To me, it felt really important. It felt like I was saying something about our culture and about men and women and um, power and powerlessness and, and haves and have nots. It just felt, you know, it felt like a really important exploration to me and a real um, opportunity to look at some of these things we were hearing a lot about in the news. You know, there's a lot about you know, different uh, cases, you know, Bill Cosby was in the news and, and um, the Stanford uh, rape trial was in the news. And there were all these kind of stories about power and powerlessness and, uh, you know, gender. Um, and I, I think that's what I just was so into this character and I wanted her to be able to heal and I wanted I wanted any women who had experienced this kind of situation 
to see that there was a way to healing too. So that's what kept going me through, through this book. It was it was an important book for me. And the other thing is my, my work really has changed. It's like, I guess you, you said 2010. So, you know, there was a time back then, it was like I, I did a lot of things that were a little more serial killer and, and uh, that kind of book. And it's almost like that dark place I don't want to go. Like, mm-hmm. The, the books are still dark, but it's like I want to go to a little different place. It's, this was more a story instead of, about, instead of exploring, like, uh, trying to find the killer who's killing lots of people. It was a, a more intimate kind of journey that, uh, of suspense that, to me, isn't just, it's more about healing than about the dark that's in the world, even though... You know, it's a, a fight against the dark in the world. You know, you, you said something that was kind of uh, interesting at the beginning of that of that answer was you said, you know, you wanted her to heal and you were rooting for her to heal. And, you know, and some people look at it and it's like, well, you're the author. You can make her do whatever you want. But it doesn't really work that way at times because then the story doesn't become believable. So when you say you were rooting for her to heal, when you're sitting there and, and you're going through and writing – you you really don't know kind of how they're going to talk to you and how characters are maybe going to handle certain situations until you kind of get to that point. And I think readers don't really truly understand the fact that characters do kind of have a mind of their own and you just can't force the square peg in the round hole. Exactly, exactly. That's the, one of the coolest things about writing, too, is like you're writing – uh, a scene like there was a big scene toward the end of the book where she has a, a revelation, and I, you know that was her talking. That wasn't me. You know, it was like mm-hmm. that all came out of her character and the, the person that she became became over the course of the book. And um, yeah, it's you know it it, it it surprises the author. You're you're in control, but you're not, and it's got to ring true. And if you built your character legitimately and authentically um so it's believable you know it 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 can happen the way you want it to right and that's and those are the fun things i think as an author that 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 you get too because you kind of write something down in dialogue and you're like wow that's like so not me in any way (laughs) so somebody's (laughs) channeling kind of this stuff yeah, exactly. Sometimes when you go back and read something of your own, well, I, I say you, but me, I'll, I, when I do it, sure. I'll be like, whoa, I wrote that? I don't even remember writing it. I'm like, I wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of cool. It's like, it's a whole different place in your brain. Yeah. I mean, and and the funny, and the other thing that that's also kind of difficult for authors to do, I don't know, and, and is, you know, this book had been written probably 10 months ago. You had finished it up, and it was done in the shelf, and you're already on to the next one. So you're having to kind of go back and kind of, right. you know, explore yourself back into this book because now it's out, and now you're, going to have, now you're talking about it, even though your mind is already within the next book, which could already be in the editing process with your editor right now. And so right. it's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. Uh, in preparation for this, I, I grabbed the book. This interview, I grabbed the book, and I was looking up some of the names. Because, yeah. I, you know, I was like, what was the chief of police's name? You had to go uh-huh. look it up because that's true. I'm actually doing final revisions on uh, a book that's coming out next. 
So it does. It, it gets all tangled up in there. Yeah, you're like, you don't want to say the word Peter because maybe Peter's in this book and not in the last book. And you're like, oh, shoot, that's not – no, that he's coming up. No, people, Peter's coming. So it's like you don't right. want to forget it. Exactly. Exactly. People don't sometimes what, understand that. But so Miranda Radar, give us a sense of, you know, who she is. Why why, why Miranda? Why her? Why? Why Why Miranda? Why, why, yeah, why that why, character? Why, why is she the perfect one to be – in this book? Oh, wow. Uh, she's the perfect one. Yeah, I didn't say they would I mean, all be easy questions. I know. Thanks a lot, John. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought I would softball the first I, one to you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's because it's, it's her story. It's like I built mm-hmm. the story around her, if that makes sense. It's like you mm-hmm. start with I started with uh, this teenager from this this family, and this happened to her. And then I I built the whole story from that, if that makes sense. So it's not like yep. I just took her and plopped her into it. It started with her, and then you 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 build her and the plot together. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, she couldn't have been. I mean, she couldn't have been a fancy pants girly girl, you know. She couldn't have been, the story wouldn't have worked if I'd made her, you know, from money or a college girl. It would have been a different story or, you know, a city girl or, you know, I guess you have to start with psychologically and culturally, okay, who is she, you know, the setting um, and actually build from there. So it isn't for me like just plopping a character in there. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. I mean, a lot of things have to be crafted and a lot of things have to kind of be put mm-hmm. together. And when, you know, when you go to conferences and you speak and, and you know, and people want to pick your brain, what's the one thing that that they constantly, you know, want to know from you as a, you know, as extremely successful author that's able to make, you know, a living at this because, you know, mm-hmm. 95% of the people who write have day jobs. You know, they have to do something else because they can't make a living at it. You know, what's the one right. thing that you try to get them to push them over the hump so they can, you know, they don't need to be millionaires. I think that those 95% just want to say they're a writer and make money at it and, and be able to live, right. you know, their lives as a writer. So what do you kind of let them know about to kind of get them maybe over that hump to get into being able to do this because everybody knows that the funny thing is everybody knows the same words. It's just a matter right. of putting them in the right order. Right. And you know, you, you can't teach someone to be a tor- storyteller. That's something yes. that I think, you know, being a storyteller is born. Um, the, the thing that I always tell people um, that's the most important is, is to believe in yourself, to write like Treat it with respect. So put it before other things. Um, make yourself a schedule. If you're working full time, you figure out a time of early morning or late night or whatever you need to do to, to give it the respect it deserves and the time it deserves. Um, and to, to be, you know, to be authentic. I think that's so important. You, just, you have to, you know, you can't just emulate someone else. You have to tell the story that calls to you. 
and uh, then your voice is going to come out with that story. There's no, you know, it's like people want to know what the secret is sometimes. What's, right. You know, what's the magic bullet? You don't, you don't hear that as much now because there is, you know, independent publishing is such a viable uh, avenue. So people aren't just continually hammering their head against, you know, a big publishers' doors. Uh, so you don't hear that as much, but there's not a magic bullet. There's, it's hard. It's hard work, and it's dedication, and it's respect, and um, um, you know, perseverance, and uh, passion. You know, I, I'm always like, you, you got to have passion for it because that, if you have passion for what you're doing, that's gonna that shows up in the writing, and that's readers feel that mm-hmm. when they read it. So, so now, do, do you still do a lot of reading, or do you just, I, I mean, you just don't have the time to really read too much anymore? I, I don't read as much, nearly as much as I used to, which which um, I, I feel tremendously guilty about. I constantly am buying books and uh, not getting to them or not finishing them, you know. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's... Yeah. But, okay, so, but what's one of, do you, are you seeing any... You know, for, from from the styles, because I start to see a lot more different, you know, trends that are coming. I mean, there's a lot more, you know, with a lot of the books that are coming out now, there seems to be a lot more psychological kind of things that are happening with characters and really putting the mm-hmm. reader into this thing. What kind of trends, you know, are you kind of seeing? Are you kind of seeing any anything like that around? And does any of those kind of books that you read influence maybe like your next book? You know, not maybe not a trend-wise, but you, you kind of know what I mean, just like, you know, understanding what fans and readers are becoming more intrigued with writing or reading. You know, and it could be, you know, I don't read enough to, to, to know the trends. I mean, just kind of what catches my eye and what I'm seeing is, like you say, you know, more psychological suspense, uh, flawed characters, characters that are troubled so you don't have as much of a uh, you think about uh, Gone Girl or um, Girl on the Train, on the train, um, that you have these characters that are terribly flawed that are don't seem too much like a hero or heroine, you know, that are the center of the books. Because readers will sometimes complain, oh, I, I couldn't stand that book because I just couldn't stand the characters. But mm-hmm. people seem to be intrigued by those kind of stories a lot now. Um, a lot of kind of women's, fiction with a little suspense in it, you know, which you might even be able to call uh, the other girl. You know, it's it's definitely a suspense novel, but it's kind of women's fiction too. Um, So I see that going on. I think that that, uh, serial killers are dead. No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it could be, like I say, it could be I'm just not, drawn to that anymore but I know I've talked to some other authors and it's the same thing for them they don't want to go there anymore either they're like over it yeah so um but that's that's kind of my my little take on on what I'm seeing yeah it has it has kind of been hashed and rehashed 17 mm-hmm. times over as, as the serial killer of you know the diabolical one I mean the thing that I always laugh at is you know you, you read the back of the book on somebody who writes a series maybe 15 to 20 characters in and it's like this is the most diabolical killer ever and I'm like that's what you wrote on the last back of the book I'm like so is it the last one or is it this one which is the most diabolical one (laughs) 
think it got more diabolical every time. <laughs> uh, they just keep getting more diabolical. And and what's exciting is I think to be able to see how people's, you know, just how society's minds are working. And I'm waiting for how society is today now that we have such a clash that's just in our face mm-hmm. over like a month ago over the Charlottesville and everything that's going on. How much of society is now going to start to enter, you know, these books, and when are we going to start seeing more of those? Because, you know, for years you didn't have Ku Klux Klan books or white supremacists, really. But right. is that stuff now going to start creeping into, you know, the, the, these books? I mean, the government is just it, – it's uh, – right. you say whatever you want. No matter what side you're on, you can't say that it's, you know, running smoothly. Uh, so, right. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. So I don't know. Oh. Right. Oh, I think it will. I think it has to. And then all the natural disasters, too. It's like, um, yeah. you know, I just think that, that, you know, we just are, you know, because we're, we're, you know, popular fiction and popular fiction result, you know, reflects what's going on and what's in the public consciousness. And, and I think that it's just, yeah, it is. It's just all going to seep into the books. In the movies we see, in TV shows. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Is is I guess the thing. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. I guess it depends. Of make course. it right. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on if the writers can can write it correctly. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I just you just never know. You never know. You never know what you're gonna get. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a great time for readers, but I think it's a hard mm-hmm. time for authors because you know, 15 years ago, publishers were able to control more of the supply that's gone out and now they really can't yeah. control the supply and so readers have an abundance of stuff to choose from but yeah. they don't really have you know uh, they don't really know how to make those decisions better right yeah it, i think it is a very difficult time for writers you know i think especially you know um writers who've been in the business for a while it's because there's a huge culture shift in in writing and in the publishing community you know and the, the i went to a conference um and they they talked about the tsunami of content there's a tsunami of content out there now um you know and there's there's the the the, the price thing that that's going on now you know people think that you know spending you know 9.99 for a book is outrageous. Um, maybe you spent the you know writer spent a whole year writing it like I do, and and you know is that only worth two ninety nine? You know. Yeah, like I know, cents. I know. You spend a year of your life, and you're like ninety nine cents. <laughs> right, right, or better, free. <laughs> yeah, you're like free ninety nine cents. Hey, gotta do what I gotta do to get right. readers, you know. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So, um, you know, I think for writers who want to get their work out there, though, it's it's an, it, it's a really awesome time because, you know, they can put their work out there and they can, you know, put it at 99 cents or free or whatever. And, you know, you can build a following and then build your career that way. So yeah, it's, you can. It's, it's interesting. I'm not complaining, by the way. I'm just, sure. I'm just observing. It's just like you just roll with it. Yeah, you just about, you, all you can do. The only thing you control is write the best book you possibly can, and that's all you exactly. can do. And every time you sit down there, you just have to say, "I just got to write the best book I can. I can't let any, any other things like out of my control seep into my thought process." Right, right. The minute you do that, you're in trouble. Yeah. Think, so yeah. 
we're coming down to the end. What you got going on new? So you, you're into this next book right now, like you said, is that the, is that the editors and, and getting going right now. So what are fans going to be able to see from you in the future? I mean, are you going to stick to the one book a year, um, or are you going to try to maybe do more? Is it going to be in the same realm? What, what, what can we expect from you? Uh, well, uh, this past this past year and a half, I I, I did an independently um, publish a, independently publishing a series, a supernatural thriller series. And so the the third book in that series is going to be because that's the one I'm editing now. That one's going to be coming out in February, and then after that, I'll have that one's titled Fallen Five, and the series is The Lightkeepers. So. Okay. Uh, uh, really excited about that. It's been really fun to write something uh, somewhat out of genre because of the supernatural paranormal element. Right. Um, and then after that, I'll be doing another book for St. Martin's and um, just kind of pulling an idea together now. So not even enough yet to talk about. Really? You're still checking, uh, you still kind of scour the CNN and the local news and the newspapers to mm-hmm. see, hmm, what, what's going on over there that I can kind of catch? <laughs> yep, exactly. And listen to that idea that just gives me that, I call it the dark gift moment. It's the, the, the thing that just gives me the little goosebumps on the back of my neck or the yeah. just the wow. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to find that still for the next one. So ericaspindler.com is the best place for people to find out about you. And are you doing any? Are you going to do any appearances? You going to be anywhere uh, where people are going to be able to find out about you? Or uh, I'm really. I have nothing planned right now. I've already done a couple signings, um, but I'm on Facebook and really active on Facebook, Pinterest, you know, Instagram, yeah. all those things. Got to so, do it all. Uh, yeah, got to do it all. It's kind of fun too. Yeah, some of it's fun. Some of it's yeah. kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't care about your muffins. You know, <laughs> I'm happy right. you made blueberry muffins, but you don't need to share it with me because they're, you know, <laughs> I gotta pass through right. those things sometimes. <laughs> but you know, I, I do. It, it, it is one of those things where you have to do a lot of social media now. I mean, it's a lot of work, not just writing the book, but I tell you, oof. I do not envy you guys yeah. to have to try to keep up with everything nowadays. And, and a lot of the times you've got to kind of stay, you know, mainstream. You can't really go off too much because you just don't know the crazies that you're going to attract if you try to say anything right. political or do anything else. It's like just oh, yeah. stay away from it. It's not worth it. Exactly. Unless you're a political thriller writer like Brad Thor, he has no problem telling you what he feels like. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> – there would be some you know. freedom in that. But, yeah, no, I, yeah. I – uh... I have a no religion, no politics policy for my author page, you know. Exactly. um, Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Erica, it has been an absolute pleasure, again, of course, to speak with you. It's been too long, so we can't wait until long next time. Um, Okay. But, again, congratulations on The Other Girl, and very excited also that, you know, you're you're bringing out the third book in in the Supernatural series, and that's going to be, you know, great for you, too. Again, that's just another challenging thing. Keep yourself fresh as an author. You bet. That's it. All right. Well, you you have a good one and enjoy, and we will talk with you soon. Okay. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is Erica Spindler, and you can go to ericaspindler.com, and the latest book is called The Other Girl. It is out now. True Erica Spindler form. It is a book that you should have on your bookshelf. 
um, that, that you need to read and, and get involved in. So we want to thank all of our authors for being on the show today. Of course, again, uh, we had Michael Rubin, we had George Bernstein, Thomas Keish, and now followed by Erica Spindler. So uh, keep up to date with everything that's going on. If you want to email us, you can do it at radio at suspensemagazine.com. Uh, if you have any questions for any of the guests, maybe I can, you know, get them off to them and, you know, let you know what they uh, have to say back. So don't don't feel that you can't, you know, email us and, and uh, ask us what's going on. Uh, if you want to copy the magazine, editor at suspensemagazine.com. And we have a show coming up this Tuesday. We had to cancel last Tuesday. We're going to have Beyond the Cover with uh, Kevin O'Brien. So Jeff and I are going to have Kevin on talking about his latest book, Hide Your Fear. So until next time, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Keep reading. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.